0: I'm going to make a few modifications here for VBS but we're almost ready to go. Turn in your Bibles if you would please to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we're at. And beginning in verse 4 is where we want to pick up here today, but before we do, of course, we want to Uh, begin a little bit, give us a little bit of background, because this whole section actually began in chapter 5, verse 11. and runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. The section which we are now in contains our third warning passage. Do we remember what our third warning passage is? It is, if you're not growing in Christ, there's a big spiritual problem with very dire consequences. We've been building uh, towards this over the last several weeks, Remember from chapter 5, verse 11, that one of the reasons that uh, they have not been growing is, uh, since their profession of faith is because of chapter 5, verse 11. Take a peek at that. Uh, he says, concerning him, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So one of the reasons that they're not maturing, they, they're not moving from their profession of faith into full salvation is because they've quit applying the truths of God's word to their lives. They have, they're hearing it now, but they're just kind of checking that out. Like, I don't want to make that next step. I hear what you guys are saying. I know what the Word of God tells me to do. I know this is truth. I made a profession at one point in time that I believed these things. But now, since I'm I mean, all of this persecution, I'm not sure if I want to take that next step and truly surrender it all to Christ. That's what's happening here. And so the author of Hebrews says, You've become dull of hearing. What does that mean? Well, that word actually means lazy or sluggish. You're no longer hearing the word of God and then applying it to your life as you should, which is what all believers do. Instead, what you're doing is you're hearing it and then choosing not to apply it to your life. Now, notice that they were not always lazy or sluggish. They became lazy. And how did they do that again? They stopped applying the truths of Scripture to their life. Had they continued to keep applying the truth of Scripture to their lives, they would have continued to mature. They would have grown in completeness in Christ. In fact, he says, look at verse 12 in chapter 5, just as a reminder, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Now, that word, those words, elementary teachings, Uh, are referring to the Old Testament, which the Jews understood or should have understood. He's telling them you need to move beyond just your basics of what it means to be uh, in Judaism and embrace their fuller meaning in Christ. You had just a picture, a shadow of all that would happen when Christ arrived, when the Messiah arrived. That has happened. You should now be moving past that shadow of things to come and embracing the truth of what it means in Christ. That was not happening. He says you ought to be teachers. but Not only should you have moved past the basics, you should be teaching others what it means or those truths mean in Christ. But they were, these professing believers were trusting in their elementary understanding of the Old Covenant as their basis of faith, instead of fully trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior. They need solid food. They need to move beyond milk. They need to move into solid food. And in the context, this solid food is a deeper understanding of the truths of Jesus, the promised Messiah, and how those truths apply to the New Covenant. Look at verse 14 then in chapter 5. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is an infant. What is he saying? Grow up. Grow up. You're still a baby spiritually. Now, in in Christianity, right, when someone is a new believer, we call them baby Christians, right? They, They... they have made their profession of faith. They've embraced this now. And now as they're applying those truths to their life every day, they mature to the point that they are truly saved, right? They, I mean, they embrace those truths and are truly saved. He says those who are truly saved, look at verse 14, but solid food is for whom? For the mature, right? For those who have actually applying those truths to their lives, who because of what? Practice, which means They're actually doing it. They're not just talking about it. They don't just have head knowledge. They're actually applying that truth to their lives. Those who have moved beyond their head and into their heart and then into their hands and feet, in other words, they're applying their faith to their lives, those are the ones, he says, are the truly mature. Those who are truly saved have already embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they understand the truths regarding why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. They are already digesting solid food. And the author of Hebrews says, everybody in this congregation needs to be at the same point. Everybody in our church here needs to be at the same point. Instead of having some unbelievers and then having some who are professing believers but have never truly surrendered their life to Christ, and then true believers, instead of having those three segments We should all be true believers by now. All of us should be at the same point. We shouldn't have this variance. Will we, of course, have people who come in who are seeking? God is pulling at their heart. They'll be unbelievers? Yes. But that shouldn't be the majority of Christ's church. The majority of Christ's church should be true believers. True believers. Well, he wants them to apply these things to their lives and put them into practice. So then remember in chapter 6, verse 1, he starts off and says, Therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, he's saying, because you're spiritual babies, because you're infants, because you've quit applying these truths to your life, you, here's what you need to do. So these verses 1 through 3 in chapter 6 are the how-to section. He just called them babies. He just told them they need to grow up. Now he's going to explain how they need to do that. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, again, based on the fact that you're spiritual babies at this time, he lays out exactly what they need to do. And he does that by little couplets, right? He takes two things and pulls them together. There's three of these, three sets of two, so six things in total. And he says, these are the elementary principles that, You need to move past. Now, first, notice the two things they need to do with these things. The first one is leave, and the second is press on. You need to leave these old basics, and you need to press on to maturity in Christ. You need to leave these shadows of things to come, and you need to embrace the things that are already here in Christ. So, literally, the Greek translation is leaving the beginning teaching of the Messiah in the Old Covenant, press on to maturity, or press on to perfection, or press on to completion in Christ. That's exactly what it means. But what are those uh, specific teachings? Again, we have the six elementary teachings found in these couplets. The first, we see in uh, chapter 1 of 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings of Christ, let us press on to maturity. Not, allowing a, not laying a foundation of what? Repentance and dead works. Those are our first two. Repentance and dead works. And what? Faith toward God, right? So we have repentance from dead works. Faith in God is the first one. Then the next one we see in verse 2 of instruction about washings, which would be ceremonial washings and laying on of hands, right? And then the third couplet is the elementary teaching about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Did Judaism have all of those things? Yes. These were the basics. If you were a Gentile and came to faith in uh, to Judaism, you would have been taught these six things. This is what it means to be a Jew. If you're going to be a full proselyte, then you would have had to embrace all six of these things and know what they meant. And remember, we took some time and walked through all those. Is repentance from dead works talked about in the Old Testament? Yes. It is. They knew that when they sinned, right? They had to, in their mind, dead works was anything that didn't glorify God. So they did they know they had to repent? Yes. We see repentance all through the Old Testament. Did they understand about uh, faith in God? Yes. Absolutely they understood that. Did they understand about instruction about ceremonial washings and what that meant? Yes. To them that meant cleansing. Cleansing so they could come before God. And then did they understand about laying on hands? Yes, on the Day of Atonement. Remember, the high priest would place his hands on the sacrificial lamb, transferring, if you would, symbolically the sins of the people onto the lamb that was to be sacrificed. And then what about the resurrection of the dead? Yes. Remember, even as far back as Job. Job talks about, I shall see my Lord in the flesh. So he understood that, right? And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, talks about eternal judgment for Israel. So all of these things were already in the Old Testament. They understood that. Those are the basics, if you will. But what about in Christianity? Do these things take on a deeper, fuller meaning in Christ? How about repentance from dead works? Oh, yes, absolutely. We can't earn our way to salvation. We can't merit our way to salvation. We know now in Christianity that we are saved by grace through faith. And this, not of ourselves, right? But it's a gift of God, right? We know we can't can't do enough good works. We can't build enough orphanages. We can't have enough hospitals in our name. We can't help enough little old ladies across the street, right, to get into heaven. It's only by faith. It's only by faith. Do we understand faith in God? Oh, we understand it now, don't we? Far more fully. Because it's not only faith in God, it's faith in God through Jesus Christ. It's not in the New Testament we understand, All right? I am the way and the truth. No man comes to the Father except by me. How about instructions about washings? That's the word baptismos. Remember, it's in the plural here which means, which would refer to in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, every other place where it's in plural, it would talk about washings. But in the New Testament, it's always in the singular. Why? There's only one baptism in Christianity, not multiple ceremonial washings. There's one baptism, right? One faith, one Lord and Savior, right? One baptism, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How about the laying on of hands? Yeah. We understand that Jesus Christ is our sacrificial lamb and that our sins, right? He carried on. He took on the weight of the world, the sins of the world. We understand that now more fully than they understood that then. And even resurrection from the dead. We know that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection now. And we understand about eternal judgment. So all of these things in Christianity take on a, a deeper, fuller, richer meaning in Christianity than just the basics, the fundamentals or as the author of Hebrews calls them, the elementary teachings of the Old Testament. These basics would have been taught by before by being baptized into the Jewish church over 2000 years ago. These would have been the catechism if you will. This is what you had to know. And although each of these is from a Jewish context, they take on a deeper, fuller meaning in and significance in Christ. The point here is that they do not represent anything but the basics, right? The, just the basics. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, you've got to move beyond that. you got to move beyond the basics here and embrace the fuller meaning in Christ or you're stuck back here and you're not growing. As a matter of fact, you're not only not moving forward, you're actually falling behind. You're actually falling away. How far are they falling? All the way back to Judaism. The author of Hebrews says, don't do that, don't do that. It was necessary to go from knowledge of those initial truths in the Old Covenant to their fuller understanding and significance in Christ in the Newer Covenant. Which brings us to Verse 3. And so the author of Hebrews says, this we will do. We can do this. If what? If God permits. If God permits. Now that verse is very similar to the warning that God issued in chapter 3 in reference to the wilderness wanderings. Do you remember that? Again, flip back a page or two. Chapter 3, verse 11. As I swore in my wrath... They what? Shall not. Not could not, right? Not maybe, right? Remember, they're not able, not permitted to enter God's rest. And notice at the beginning of verse 4 in chapter 6, he says, right after verse 3, if God permits, verse 4, for in the case of those, for in the case of those, notice that, who is that? That's connecting the ones, if God permits. For in the case of those, we've got the same people we're talking to all the way throughout here. The sense of this verse is this. We will press on to maturity. We will press on to completion, if God permits. For we know about those in the wilderness generation whom God did not permit to press on and enter the promised land. So these words, if God permits are now the fulcrum for the next verses. Okay? They kind of set the table for what's gonna flip and what's gonna happen here. So that's where we want to start unpacking. Remember, all last week we spent our time talking about the four main views. Remind ourselves quickly what they are. We don't need to spend a lot of time. We just spent time on those, I guess it was two weeks ago. Number one, some people believe that the con the subject here of who we're talking to are these are true believers who lose their salvation and then fall away told you we reject this view, all of you are shaking your head, nope, 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 that's good, uh, they re- we reject this because scripture explicitly states, not just once, not, not twice, but multiple times that you cannot lose your salvation, if you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation, and secondly, if it's true that this is speaking about true believers, and they could possibly lose their salvation, then the text tells us it's impossible for them to ever get it back. So even for the people who think you can lose your salvation, they don't like the second half of that verse because they want to lose it, and get it, and lose it, and get it, and lose it, and get it, and hopefully get it right before dying, I guess. I'm not, I'm not sure how that works. View number two, these are true believers, some people think, who deny Christ, but they remain saved, although they lose some rewards and haven't. There's way too many problems for me. I could spend the next month detailing all the problems biblically with this view. Notwithstanding, there's the epistle of James and 1 John, which explicitly teach against this, this view. View number three is that this is a hypothetical view. And again, I told you that a hypothetical warning is not a real warning at all, is it? I mean, if something is impossible to occur... You don't need to warn me about it. You may recall my purple unicorn in the parking lot illustration, right? The odds of that happening, you know, if I said beware the purple unicorn in the parking lot, when you leave today, you'd all look at me like, yeah, okay, thanks, right? He's just kidding around. Why? Why did? Why would you not take that serious? Well, it's hypothetical, and secondly, it doesn't exist. It's not a real warning, right? It's not a real warning. Then we looked at verse, uh, the view number four. These are professing Christians who have come right to the edge of salvation, but they just can't seem to take that final step. There's something that they're clinging to. There's something that they just cling to and say, I cannot surrender all of my life to Christ. I still want to keep my independence in this area. I still want to do what I'm doing over here. Realistically, what they're saying is, I really like these sins, and I know God doesn't like those, Or I like these idols over here. They're some of my favorites. And I really don't want to give those up. And I know if I surrender it all to Christ, I'm going to have to give those things up. I really don't want to do that. So I'll come right up to the edge of salvation. I'll look like a Christian. I might even have some Jesus gear in my closet. I might have a bumper sticker in the back of my car. I'll go through all the trappings. But I'm not going to take that final step. Because if I do... I gotta surrender it all. Jesus won't accept a partial me, a partial faith. That's like kinda pregnant. Right? I mean, you know, you either are or you're not. You either saved or you're not. There's not a kinda believe or kinda Christian. I know there's another religious system that talks about a practicing, whatever, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? You're practicing to have real faith someday? I'm not sure what that means. Practicing, practicing. All right, so anyway, these are professing Christians who float on down the river of life but neglect their salvation. These are professing Christians who've heard the good news repeatedly. They've seen God's hand at work in the lives of many true believers. They've seen God's transforming power in full display in front of their eyes. And yet, when crisis comes, When persecution happens, when everything doesn't go swimmingly in their life, they fall away. Remember Matthew 13, right? In the parable of the soils. Remember the rocky soil, right? They embrace it, it seems good, and then persecution and trials come and what? They fall away. They looked for a while as if they were truly saved. Their lies now show they were never saved. This is the view that I believe best fits the context of not only this chapter, but really the entire book of Hebrews. So the key to, to doing this, to understand these two things here, that I want us to see next in the verses 4 through 6. We'll probably only get to 5, 4 and 5. I want you to ask yourself these two questions. Who's the subject that we're talking to? Who's the subject the author is talking to? Secondly, I want you to pay attention to five verbs here Because they're the key to understanding this next section. Who's the subject here? So let's look at verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So who's the subject here? Well, grammatically... Our subject has not changed. It's still those, right? It's still those. Who are those? Everybody, the same people we were talking about before. We've not changed subject. Still those who are infants, right? Who are clinging to elementary principles. This is the same group. The author is still talking about the same group of individuals through this epistle so far. These are the professing Christians that we've talked about, which we've demonstrated every chapter. Incidentally, even those who look at this text and believe this letter is to believers, switch to unbelievers in this section right here. Now, why would that be? Because it's very difficult to reconcile this passage if you think these are believers. And secondly, grammatically, it doesn't leave a lot of, inter- it doesn't leave a lot of room for you to switch your view there. Now, the second key, I said, so we know the subject is professing believers. Let's look at these five verbs. They are actually, I'm not trying to press you with my Greek, I'll explain all this later, they are aorist passive partici- participles, aorist passive participles, like you guys said, Aor- okay, I can get all right, let's look at these real quick, okay, well not real quick, but let's look at them, all right, enlightened, might want to underline that in your Bible, Un- enlightened, tasted, been made partakers, tasted again, right, tasted the word, and have fallen away, okay, and have fallen away. Those are your five aorist passive participles. Those are your five verbs, if you will. Now, we're going to rely heavily on the Moody Bible commentary here and Dr. Ronald Sauer, who is a well-known a scholar in the New Testament, and this is a book that he would teach to every Moody Bible uh, Institute uh, student who would sign up for either Greek or Hebrews. Hebrews is his specialty. If you might notice in the Moody commentary that you have different, that's because that's the book that they are known for. This is the one where he writes his dissertation from. Anyway, if you don't have that commentary, I highly recommend it. Of all the commentaries I've read, which I'm actually a little over 30 now for this passage, I think that this is the closest one grammatically. It's the one I would recommend you refer to. Okay. So, Let's look at the first one, enlightened. That word enlightened means illuminated. Illuminated or become known. Enlightened, become known. Keep your place here in Hebrews 6 and look at the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Verse 9. John 1.9. Not first 1 John 1, nine. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world, enlightens whom? Every man. That's the same word as we have in Hebrews chapter 6. Now, clearly being enlightened doesn't mean you're saved. Right? Because not every man is saved. Right? So it does not mean that you're saved. Illumination, enlightenment, does not mean regeneration. And just because the gospel message has been presented, and just because you understand it, does not mean that you are saved. Dr. Sauer writes this, Spiritual enlightenment is brought to every person through the incarnate word, though not every person responds correctly to it so I can be enlightened about the gospel I can be enlightened about the truth of the gospel but until I embrace it by faith right I've just been enlightened it's just been illuminated to me it's just been made aware of it it's likely here that he uses that in the same way that he uses it in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 when he's talking about uh, Hebrews chapter 10, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's kind of the same idea. And you can see it in chapter 10, verse 32 again. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, okay, or after you've received the truth, after you've heard the gospel, if you will, okay, so again, being enlightened, having the gospel illuminated does not mean that I'm saved. Nor does the next one, the next participle in our list, tasted of the heavenly gift. That word tasted means to experience, have experienced. Not only have these professing Christians been enlightened, they've also experienced the heavenly gift. Now, what is the heavenly gift? Well, some believe the author of Hebrews is talking about the Holy Spirit, but I believe that's highly unlikely because he talks about the Holy Spirit next. Okay, so I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. It's more likely, based upon how the writer uses that word heavenly, in chapter three, in chapter eleven, and chapter twelve, he's speaking about literal heaven. He's talking about heaven literally. So we have a gift, right? And that word gift is usually in reference to Christ. When we talk about a gift from heaven in the Bible, it's usually Christ is referred to the gift of God, right? The gift from heaven. So if we're talking about, we're trying to decipher what this heavenly gift is, we're talking really here about a literal gift from heaven, which could mean either Christ himself, or it could mean salvation. Can we experience the blessings of Christ or salvation and yet not be saved? that's a question right Unfortunately the answer is yes in the same way uh, Dr. MacArthur writes this in the same way you can experience God's goodness in your life and not be saved you can you can experience that matter of fact you could experience the Holy Spirit's conviction and yet not be saved right that's one of the one of the works that the Holy Spirit does here right is he convicts whom the world. Convicts the world, not just believers. Certainly, believers are convicted of their sin. But part of the way that we come to faith is that the Holy Spirit convicts us, right? And tells us we are sinners. We can experience the blessings of those close to us who are saved and yet not be saved ourselves. Remember the context of who he's speaking to. We have people who have been enlightened by God's gracious offer of salvation. They've experienced in some capacity somehow, but now they're willfully turning away from that faith and from that gift of salvation. Let's look at the next one here made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The essence of this phrase means sharing or partners or companions. Dr. Sauer writes, It sounds like everyone here is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and saved, but partakers is also used elsewhere in the New Testament and even in this same epistle in Hebrews, and it's translated companions, and that's the meaning of it. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions that's our word partakers same same word clearly this is not a reference to the son being indwelt by the companions which in this text are the angels so he's not talking about the christ being indwelt by angels Any more than our text in Hebrews chapter 6 means being indwelt or having the Spirit. Having been made partakers of the Holy Spirit does not mean you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, you might notice what's absent in all these verbs are the things that we would generally associate with salvation, right? You see things like, in this little thing about what these guys have been exposed to, do you see things like regeneration or justification or glorification, or sanctification, none of those things. They're they're conspicuously absent. Where all throughout the epistles, all throughout the New Testament, we see that again and again, right? When we're talking about salvation, they immediately start talking about repentance, right? And immediately start talking about justification, and atoning sacrifice, and redemption. We don't see any of those things here. Having been made partake of the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean indwelt by Him, nor does it mean that you're regenerated. But once again, this participle indicates that some they had some kind of a strong experience, some shared experience of the Holy Spirit in their community. And let's not forget, these professing believers have been present and the Holy Spirit has been very active in the lives of their community. They have seen companions of theirs who the Spirit has produced produced much fruit in their lives. They have people around them who are bearing good fruit. But not them. But those around them are. Those around them are. They've seen the transformation. They've seen this righteous fruit being produced by the Holy Spirit. They've seen this bearing of the fruit in the church. And yet they're tempted to fall away. They're tempted to apostatize. And indeed, some already have. So they've been illuminated by the gospel message. They've shared in the blessings of Christ and salvation to some degree. They've even shared in the experience of the Holy Spirit. But that's not all. Look at verse 5 in chapter 6. And have tasted, that's our word again, the good word of God. Verse 5 tells they've tasted the good word of God. Here again, our word taste means to experience. They've experienced the ministry of the word of God on their lives Somehow, the word of God here, that word word, is usually you would think is the word logos, but here is the word rhema, which means literal document, literal writing, or in this case would have been the literal letters of the apostles. They've experienced that. The very message of God brought to them by the letters of the apostles, taught by them, through preaching and teaching, and yet they're still tempted to fall away. Many believe this little church in Hebrews was taught by either the apostles themselves or close associates of the apostles who came to this little church and taught them themselves. So either they walked with Christ or they were close associates of those who did and taught them. And yet... They're falling away. But there's more. Look at this next one here. The powers of the age to come. When Christ came to the earth in the incarnation, the Holy Spirit broke into time and space. The Holy Spirit invaded, if you will, the earth. It it broke time and space and entered our world. Heaven became very real. Maybe in people's minds, heaven was some faraway place, which it is. But when Christ put on flesh, when the Holy Spirit was active all through Christ's ministry, they got a glimpse, didn't they, of what, what it would be like in a real heaven. Specifically speaking, for in the Jewish mind, they only had two thoughts. Here's their two thoughts. There's two ages. There's the age we're in now, and there's the age to come. That's how they thought. That's what the Jewish mind thought. There's the age we're in now and the age to come. What was the age to come? In their mind, the age to come is the millennial kingdom. In their mind, the age to come is that time when Christ reigns and rules over the entire earth, when when he uses the nations as a footstool. That's what they thought. So what true believers will experience in a millennial kingdom is made evident in part today, right? We get to see some of that. What is he talking about? Well, in the millennial kingdom, we'll see powers of on full display regularly. And what are those things? Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Do you remember the very first warning we had when he said, do not neglect your salvation? Look what he says here. Remember, he just gets done talking about Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Joshua. Right? He's going on and on and on. Then in chapter 2, remember, he said, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved to be unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, How will we escape so great a salvation? If you thought that God held us accountable to the law, how much more accountable are we then to the words of God himself through his Son? That's what what he's saying. Then he explains that. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, Christ said it himself. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard the apostles, verse 4, God also then testified with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Now, all of those things in chapters in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, look at that word miracle in chapter 2, verse 4, is the word dunamis, and that's that word that's translated power back in our text, in chapter 6, verse 5. So these professing believers had experienced these powers, these signs, these wonders, and their miracles. But let's not forget that the whole purpose of all of that was to confirm that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The whole point of all of that is to show that he fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah. That was the whole point of those. They proved without a shadow of doubt that the word prophesied about the Messiah was fulfilled in the living Christ. And so these professing believers had experienced all of these things, and yet many had fallen away. They had been illuminated by the gospel. They had experienced the blessings of Christ and salvation. They were made sharers or companions or partners in the experience of the Holy Spirit. They experienced the literal writings of God through the preaching and teaching of the word. They had seen the power of God through confirming testimonies and signs and wonders and miracles. And yet, no regeneration. No salvation. And many were falling away to Judaism. They saw and experienced all that God. He gave them a taste of that. He gave them a chance to experience all of that. And they looked at it and said, That is wonderful. I've been illuminated. I've I've experienced. I've tasted. I, I've shared in the in the, the work of the Holy Spirit. I've seen God's hand at work with all of these people in the congregation. No thanks. No thanks. Not interested. Kind of like my own little thing i got going on here. No thanks. I reject God, all of that. And I want to return back to what I'm most comfortable Each of these five participles are things that happened in the past and, but still have continuing effects today. So he's like, you, you were illuminated once and you're still illuminated now. You've experienced the ministry of God's word, and you're still experiencing it now. That's what that word aorist means. It happened in the past, but the continuing effects are still today. Remember when Christ was on the cross, he said, it is finished. That was aorist. It was finished then. It's finished now. Same same tense. It is finished. They... These were things that were acted upon them. They weren't the ones who were being active. It was being acted upon them that's passive. They had been acted upon by having the gospel illuminated to them, and it was still acting upon them. They had experienced the blessing of Christ through the lives of others and through the community of faith they belong, and they're still experiencing it. They had shared the experiences of the Holy Spirit as they saw firsthand the the work of God in the lives of true believers, and they continued to share in that experience as long as they were in that community of faith. They had before and still now been under the word of God and preachers and teachers sharing the literal word of God and expounding upon that truth. They had seen before and were still experiencing the power of God in and through the lives in their community Probably no greater miracle to see the power of God was when someone comes to full salvation. Amazing they were seeing people coming and being saved. How could it be then that they could fall away from the faith they once professed? Is it even possible when you read and you understand exactly what this means They experienced all of that, this illumination, this experiencing, this this tasting, this partaking, this sharing, all of that, and still willfully choose to walk away from the faith? It seems impossible. Now, if you recall, I told you that each of these warning passages have been demonstrated and tied to an Old Testament account, and this one's no different. Let us not forget that this epistle was written to show that Christ and the new covenant are better, and that all that God had promised in the old covenant was fulfilled in Christ. Which is why the author of Hebrews keeps coming back to that Old Testament wilderness wanderings. Remember when we looked at that in chapters 3 and 4? He keeps coming back to that as an example to demonstrate this truth. And so with this in mind, those that were enlightened or illuminated were probably those who were guided by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. That same connection could be made for each of those five verbs that we looked at. How about the manna Israel ate in the desert as that heavenly gift? That gift from heaven, literally. How about the word of God that came through Moses and the amazing works of power that were demonstrated to them all throughout that wandering? Even through the Exodus, parting of the Red Sea. And yet they too fell away and were not allowed to enter the promised land. They rebelled against the Lord, they were disobedient in their belief, and they fell away from the truth of the one and only true God. Okay, Pastor. How does that apply to us? How does that fit for us today? Beloved, this is a warning to us today, to everybody. We, too, may have a very real experience of the transforming work of God's power through our attendance at church. You can see the Holy Spirit at work and the transforming power of those around you. If you've connected with folks in the body of Christ, you can see how God is working in and through them. You can see the different gifts that they have. There are some here who have the gift of helps. There are some here who have the gift of evangelism. There are some who have the gifts of exhortation. Some who have the gift of admonishment. We try to steer away from them. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We gravitate towards those with the gift of encouragement. Not just rattle off four or five gifts. And I bet you in your mind, you're, you know who those people were. When I said that gift, you said, that person has that, that person has that, that person has that. So you get to partake in those gifts because you're in this community of faith. Because God is at work in and through the lives of believers. But just by association with true believers, many can share in the wonderful privileges given to them by God and still not be saved. Your association with those who are true believers does not save you. Only your faith, your personal faith, saves you. Is this not what happened to those in the wilderness wanderings? The very people who saw God work so mightily in front of their very eyes fell away in unbelief as soon as the first trial hit. Well, we had it better off in Egypt. Take us back there. At least we had a pot of stew. why well, did you bring us all the way out there to the desert to kill us? These are the same people who just saw God through Moses part the Red Sea. The first trial comes along I'm out. No thanks, God. I'll go back to this other stuff. It's much more comfortable for me. And remember what God said to him in chapter 3, verse 11. You shall not enter my rest. Not you might not enter my rest. Not you could not enter my rest. You shall not enter my rest. Why? Look at chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. He tells him why. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Remember we talked about that? What does disobedient mean? We see that they were not able to enter rest because of unbelief. The gospel is a command, beloved. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Repent. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are commands. Those are imperatives. They're not recommendations. They're not suggestions. It's a command. I believe there's a real danger in many of our churches today. I believe that there are people in our churches who have mistaken illumination and experience and the blessings in their life from being around God's people as a substitute for true salvation. They think they're saved because they speak the lingo or dress a certain way or they have a Bible or they come to church. And they think they're saved. And they're trusting in everything except the thing that they really need to trust in, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead of giving Him parts of their life, they need to surrender it all. You don't get to come to salvation on your own terms. There's only one way to salvation. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and that he did what he said he did, that he died on that cross and he was carrying those sins, your sins, my sins. And then when they were striking the hammer and it was going through his flesh, those were our sins, not his sins. He who knew no sin Again, the righteousness of us all. And you've got to believe that he died. He truly died and was buried and he resurrected on the third day. And it's because of that resurrection that we have hope of everlasting life. If you truly believe that, if you've cried out to God and said, Lord, I believe that. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Then you are truly saved. But if you're based on anything but that, you could be a professing Christian. You're holding back those things. You don't want to take that step. You come right up to the edge, but you won't take that step because you don't want to give up those things in your life and you know what God's word says you need to do. Many of these professing Christians are comfortable with being close to Christ, being close to salvation, being close to those who are saved. They might even be experiencing the blessings from being so close to those who are truly saved and yet they've never fully taken that step themselves. Maybe you know some people like that in your own life. I do. They claim to be Christians, and yet their life and the life they live is completely inconsistent with that of a true believer. Or perhaps it's you that's struggling with the truth of this passage. Maybe the Lord is working on your heart here today. and You're saying, Lord, that's me. That's me. I've never really surrendered at all. Perhaps you know you've never truly surrendered your life, all of it, to Christ. You're a Christian by association with true believers. You're a Christian by shared experience with them. But you know you've never taken that last and final step of faith. Beloved, the next few verses that we're going to get into next week speak directly to you or those that you know that fit that description. And the consequences of being in that position where you willfully reject all the Lord has given you an opportunity to experience and yet then you say, no thanks. The Bible says that's a deadly, deadly decision with eternal consequences. We'll explain that and exactly what that means when you return next week. But for now, if you're here today, you've never, ever, Made that decision for Christ. You've never, maybe you've never heard it explained to you that way. Maybe you thought that salvation was just kind of doing some of those things part way. Maybe you thought that that was okay. Maybe God brought you here today so you could hear that message today. If that's you, I pray today would be the day you would surrender your heart to the Lord fully, fully. Not just a profession of faith. And then I get to do my own thing. You're not buying fire insurance here. You are surrendering your life to Christ forever. If that's you, I pray today, even right now, in the quietness of this moment. Matter of fact, let's just bow our heads, shall we? Let's just pray. Father God, Lord, I know personally what it's like to sit in that pew and to hear a message like we heard today through your word and know in my heart that I had never taken that final step. Forty years, Lord, I traversed this planet thinking I was okay, thinking I could come to salvation the way that I wanted to come to salvation. yet, Lord, the truth of your word pierced my heart to my very soul. So, Father, I, I know what it's like to feel that way and to think I'm okay. I know what it's like, Lord, to be afraid to take that step. But that's why your word calls it faith, because we need to take that step to truly experience, truly understand. Truly know what it means to be a child of God in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. Lord, if there's one here today who, who, Lord, is in a similar position that I was those many years ago, Lord, I pray you draw them to yourself and they would just surrender it all today. Even in the quietness of this moment, You know their heart. You know it, Lord, and they know it too. And if there's one here today, Lord, I pray you that today would be the day. They'd surrender it all to you. Father, for those who have already saved, who truly know in their hearts, I pray, Lord, that they're praying to you as well. Because they were at that point themselves, at one point in their lives. And you saved them too. Father, finish this message in our hearts as only you can do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.